And one of the incredible things that we've seen, and Mike and I were talking about it before, is the uh, fact oftentimes somebody gets very ill from the plague, okay, from this horrible scourge, and they get better and they recover. And the first thing they say is, I want to give my blood. That's happened. The doctors have told me it's happened so much. I want to give my blood. I want to give my blood. Hey all this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking mostly about coronavirus and the response from our local elected officials, but we'll touch on a other couple of topics that are, you know, basically all related to this because this is an overwhelming, all-consuming news thing, uh, and it is dominating everything that's going on around us. But first, how is week uh, five of quarantine going for you, Bushido? I don't, I honestly don't know how many weeks it is at this point. Uh, it's going pretty well. Yeah, no, it's 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 hard to tell, but I think about week five because it was like March fifteenth that Garcetti announced the the lockdown order, um, or started by closing bars and restaurants and everything. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been good. Uh, mutual aid we have raised uh, over one hundred and ten thousand dollars in that spirit in that span of time. So uh, if you haven't donated uh, or if you need help, mutualaidla.org. Uh, you can reach out to volunteer. Reach out if you need assistance or just make a cash donation so we can keep this going. Um, it's a little bit weird with GoFundMe because like while we have that amount of money sort of sitting in escrow with GoFundMe, we only get a disbursement from them once a month. So it, like GoFundMe, I, I feel like not the most useful platform for this kind of work, but it's been pretty good and it's like well known. So people tend to donate to it and feel secure. And like if you do make a donation it is deductible on your taxes because it's being run through power. People organized for West Side Renewal, which is a 501c3. Uh, we've made over 200 deliveries to folks. We've paid out cash assistance to a ton of people. We have gotten, uh, I, I want to say, around two dozen people into temporary housing off of the streets and about four people into permanent housing off of the streets uh, with our outreach team, working with a lot of encampments, getting folks a lot of food, coordinating with other groups that are doing outreach. Uh, we even like helped uh, Urban Partners, which is a very large nonprofit that's been doing a lot of deliveries and like need fulfillment. I uh, helped them get a bunch of diapers for families. So uh, we've kind of become like a Swiss army knife where we just sort of like are presented with a need and then figure out how to fill it. So it's going like it's going pretty well. But even uh, but to completely like pivot away from that for a second from mutual aid work, I did want to point out the fact that like we've officially recorded uh, two years worth of content now. Uh, because this is 104, and if you take 104, Jeez. divide by 52, you get two, yeah. and that is about the limits of my mathematical capabilities. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've been doing this for a little bit more than two years, which is weird, um, but thank you all for sticking with us through that, uh, and we're going to keep yeah. going. Uh, on that note, we've got some really cool media opportunities coming up in the yep. near future. Uh, so Wednesday night, what time is it, 6 or 6.30? Uh, I honestly don't remember. Crap. Uh, we'll have to, we'll, we'll hit you with the link on Twitter, <laughs> but, uh, ground game is now starting an official Twitch talk show, uh, which is going to be broadcasting Wednesdays. I want to say it's 6 PM. I believe it's at six. Um, that, that would make sense. Yeah. And so, uh, our first show is going to be hosted by Kendall. We've got like an amazing crew, um, that's pulling this together. It's going to be really good. We're going to be doing this for a while. We hope. And so like the format of the show is going to be like 30 minutes of talk and news and like 
interviewing interesting people and maybe having some folks play some music. And then after that, mm-hmm. we're kind of going to do like just the call in comment thread show. Like if you have stuff you want to talk about, questions you want to ask, anything like that, like stick around after the show and it's just kind of going to be an, an open forum. So we're excited to see how that's going. And then also on the heels of that, uh, Chris and I here are going to experiment a little bit with broadcasting mm-hmm. this recording on Twitch on Saturday mornings. Um, so you'll be able to see all of our various shades of pretty faces uh, <laughs> popping up on your screen anytime soon. So get yourself a Twitch account uh, for Ground Game LA. It's very simple. It's just Ground Game LA. Just find that Twitch yep. channel and uh, you'll be there. And we've got a lot of other content that like we want to do and want to play around with. So we're going to experiment quite a bit, um, see what people like, see what we like, see what we feel like doing uh, and just sort of see where it goes. So I uh, hope we all catch I just you there. Confirmed and, it is. It is going to be 6 p.m. on Wednesday. Yeah, 6 p.m. So we'll we'll definitely have the yep. link in the description, and we'll definitely be bombing your social media with that. Um, but yeah, tell your friends, tell your family, uh, tell your pets. Just get everyone on Twitch. Uh, we're all gamers now. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> after my after my you know five minutes of of rambling here, how has your week been going, Chris? Uh, it's been pretty good so far. I've, I've really, uh, I dove deep into the sourdough stuff this week. Um, as anybody who sees any of my Instagram or Facebook posts will obviously be pointing out and be very well aware of, uh, I actually baked four loaves yesterday. So I'm, I'm going to be dispersing those, uh, today because it was an all day process and I'm, I'm still, you know, working the kinks out of the system for this. Uh, I will understand how to process it better. But I've also discovered that uh, I definitely need to be using bannetons and only bannetons for a high hydration bread like this. Uh, now I'm getting very much into the weeds on this. And yeah, I have no idea what those are. The bread heads. It means that the bread dough sticks. Um, it's a thing. So anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to this. This uh, all of our adventures on Twitch in the in the coming weeks. This should be really exciting. And yeah, two years. That's. Uh, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of podcasting, uh, but we're we're really happy that y'all have been sticking sticking through all of this with us. So, um, on to the topic of the day: uh, the updates for the numbers here in California, as as grim as they are. Um, last night at nine p.m., uh, LA Times updated the statewide numbers when it comes to confirmed Corona cases, confirmed cases rather of COVID-19, we're up to 29,425 confirmed cases uh, as of 9 p.m. last week. That is up 8,051 from the same time last week. Uh, And we had 1,269 new confirmed cases on Friday, which is roughly the same number of confirmed cases that we had from Friday the week before. Uh, That also means that we've got Sadly, 1,057 deaths in the state so far due to the virus. 84 of them came on Friday. Uh, If you look at the seven-day averages, which is the trend line that um, epidemiologists have been using to really assess the, the, uh, you know, ignore, it it levels out the daily ups and downs and variations in the data that are inherent to all statistics and gives you a much more of a stable idea of what is going on. Uh, The new case number really has just like totally flattened out, which is fantastic. Um, But the fatality number is continuing to climb in a very steep slope, which is unsurprising given the fact that there's this incubation timeline of a couple of weeks. But also there is this uh, really shocking uh statistic that came out of some testing from the u.s navy that you know what let's you pointed me up to yeah before we get into that let's let's uh just kind of circle back on on some national numbers because on uh thursday this week 
the U.S. surpassed 4,500 deaths in a day, which is double Jeez. the previous record. Um, and a lot of the spread, there's a lot of like things that are feeding into the number of deaths uh, increasing. Uh, some states have changed the way that they're counting stuff. We're also seeing a lot more people seeking medical treatment. We're seeing a lot more cases being diagnosed across the country. And I have a feeling, you know, there's been talk that COVID was probably in some of our major cities before it was actually identified as here. And they're going to have to go back and look at some of these deaths and see whether or not people who passed away from pneumonia were actually uh, suffering from COVID. Uh, the other thing that I want to talk about, and this is going to tie into to what we'll move on to, is that we're seeing yeah. a series of astroturf right-wing protests erupt across the nation, uh, not spontaneously. Like if, if these are not the, the media narrative that's being pushed out is that these are a bunch of like folks that have all been sitting at home going stir crazy and they all just like at the same time decided we're going to go do this. It turns out, no, they have deep connections to uh, the families of Betsy DeVos, to other billionaires who are pushing to reopen the economy at our expense Shop and at myself. our lives. We're even seeing this. Uh, we saw this in Huntington Beach yesterday, I believe, on Friday, uh, where people showed up uh, carrying signs like uh, uh, social distancing is communism. So, you know, that's a, a very smart political scientist <laughs> there. Um, but we're also seeing something called Project Gridlock, Gridlock yeah. sorry, coming to downtown, I believe this weekend, maybe next week. Uh no, it's on Tuesday to Tuesday. coincide with the city council meeting. Okay, so this is yeah. basically a bunch of folks are going to hop in their cars and try and create traffic in downtown to protest social distancing. Uh, yes. What's interesting about this is part of their guidelines for the protest are to wear a mask or better yet, stay in your car to stay safe. So, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but there there is a well-funded and somewhat well-coordinated movement that is backed by politically powerful people that is pushing to move us forward before we're ready. And we're going to see a yeah, lot oh of yeah. people die. Like the fact that the state of Texas said that they're opening up on May 1st, even in a limited way, is going to get people killed. And the state of Texas is lagging far behind other states uh, in terms of testing and especially tracing cases. So they have 29, 29 million people in the state of Texas. They have done very little testing. They've also had very few deaths and diagnosed cases. But a lot of that could be the fact that like they're not testing a lot of people that a lot of Texas is fairly rural outside of like Dallas, Fort Worth and like Houston, a lot of Texas is fairly far flung and it's hard to get the testing um, out into rural America in the way that we need. But it's also a matter of like, we've seen what happened in Italy. We've seen what happened in Wuhan. We've seen what's happening in Tokyo where cases are skyrocketing again, mm -hmm. laying off social distancing, laying off the lockdown too soon just means that more people are going to die. And so yeah. while we're facing massive unemployment. 22 million people have lost their jobs in the last month. The solution is not to force everyone back to work. The solution Correct. is to pay people and give them what they need to get through this crisis and then open up the economy when it's safe. You know, there was a, a Republican congressman from Indiana whose name is, escapes me. And he said, mm -hmm. basically, quote, you know, if it comes between choosing between American lives and the American way of life, we'll always choose the latter. And like, that's just saying you should die for capitalism and be happy about it. And these are the same assholes who are going to like mock the Soviet Union and be like, oh my God, look at all the brainwashed suckers in Soviet Russia who would die for the motherland. And it's like, okay, uh, how is dying for capitalism any different than that? I don't really get it. But this becomes scarier when we look at the cases of asymptomatic carriers because apparently there's a shit ton of them. And even outside of the Navy one, they tested everyone in a shelter and found that 60% of the people in the shelter had it, and 100% of the people who had it were asymptomatic. We don't know what the asymptomatic carrier rate is, 
And until we can actually pin down that number, we're not really in a state to do anything as far as opening up the economy or getting back to normal life. Yeah, so the, the uh, article that you mentioned uh, regarding the carrier is something that came across the wire at Reuters this week saying, quote, oh, this is the, just, the entire crew. We should clarify, this is the Teddy Roosevelt, which the captain is the man who sent up the flare asking for yeah. help and then was summarily fired by the secretary of the Navy, who then summarily yes. resigned because somebody leaked an email where he called the captain an idiot. So uh, I just watched The Death of Stalin, and I feel like we can make a very similar film about Trump's cabinet when they're out of office. Oh, 100%. Uh, also, your your phone keeps dinging. Um, yeah, so the, the, the article that we're talking about is one that came across the wire at Reuters this week, and it says, quote, sweeping testing of the entire crew of the coronavirus-stricken U.S. aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt uh, may have revealed a clue about the pandemic. The majority of the positive cases so far are among sailors who are asymptomatic, officials say. And then back at the beginning of April, uh, you'll remember that Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and also known as the guy who is constantly having to correct Trump's moronic ramblings on about the virus, uh, had offered up that it was somewhere, in his estimate, 25 to 50% uh, for the number of cases of coronavirus that are presenting as asymptomatic. Uh, but this testing on the USS Theodore Roosevelt indicates that that was absolutely a very optimistic estimate. Uh, continuing from the article, quote, The Navy's testing of the entire 4,800-member crew of the aircraft carrier, which is about 94% complete, was an extraordinary move in a headline-grabbing case that has already led to the firing of the carrier's captain and the resignation of the Navy's top civilian official. Roughly 60% of the over 600 sailors who tested positive so far have not shown symptoms of COVID-19, the potentially lethal respiratory disease caused by the coronavirus, the Navy says. Uh, the service did not speculate about how many might later develop symptoms or remain asymptomatic. So, uh, as Bushido pointed out earlier, this is an absolutely a huge uh, vindication for the kind of caution that has been shown through our mutual aid team in developing the decontamination practices. And it is pointing to a huge number of folks who currently are carrying this disease in Los Angeles and have absolutely no idea that they're doing so. Uh, the implications of the new testing on the government's plans to reopen the economy are going to be huge. And that is especially true for states like Texas, as you mentioned earlier, Bushido, that are incredibly large in terms of their population and have not been doing a lot of testing. I mean, even with the amount of testing that we've been doing here in California, we have an insignificant percentage of our total population. And I think what we just passed, what, this week we passed uh, total testing of 1% of the population of the U.S. at this point. Hooray! So it's, we have, <laughs> our, our officials are, are running around in this situation uh, more or less blind being led by somebody who is not just blind, but willfully ignorant of the devastating impact of his decision. So yep. we're, we're going to be seeing uh, this. This is, it's going to be continuing to get worse. I mean, I'm thrilled that we've got a flattening of the curve in terms of the new cases that are being reported here in the state of California. But that being said, if we embark too quickly on this plan to reopen the economy, even in a limited way, we won't we won't know what's going to happen. And and they, they still haven't confirmed yet that once you've had coronavirus, that you are then immune to catching it a second time. There there are persistent rumors that I keep hearing about uh, where there's there's news that comes out of China or other places where 
There are rumors of people having caught the disease a second time. We don't know if that is just like a flare-up of the disease that they hadn't fully kicked or what the situation was, but most circumstances you would, uh, you would expect to become immune to it once you've had it, but the number of people who... We don't even we don't know how many people have it right now. So yep. it's this whole th- <laughs> it's just a mess. Um yeah. Well, and it's it's also it it brings a lot of questions for the way that LA is handling the the oh, outbreak here. So, yes. Um and it, it 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 you know raises questions about like how long we waited to uh close the economy as it were to shut down like public events uh and how we've been dealing especially with folks in encampments and also this push that we saw in LA and San Francisco to get people into shelters and San Francisco had to shut their largest shelter because pretty much everyone in the shelter turned out to have COVID or be passing it around. 60 people got sick. They had to then move them into hotel rooms. And that's sort of like what the new move is at this point. Isn't demanding that people be warehoused in unsanitary shelters, but rather that the, I want to say millions. uh, I'm not exactly sure if that's the count, but we have several thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of empty hotel rooms sitting like empty across all of Los Angeles and, you know, California, New York, all of, all of that, all of those places. And if you look at like, let's, let's take Koreatown. So Koreatown has around 600 people. I want to say that are living on the street. The last I looked something. Yeah. That was the last count. Yeah. And the, the line hotel, which is right on Wilshire in the heart of Koreatown has like 420 rooms. They could literally house the vast majority of the people who are living yep. on the streets of Koreatown safely, securely give them uh, not, you know, not just shelter, but like a little bit of stability and the ability to like also deal with the health problems that folks are dealing with on a daily basis. But we're seeing hotels like The Line and other very like prestige hotel lines saying they don't want to house homeless people because they fear the reputation hit that they'll take that like wealthy people will do a Google search and be like, oh my God, during a pandemic, when thousands, if not millions of lives were on the line, this hotel did the human and compassionate thing by housing people in need. I will never spend a fucking dollar at the line. A homeless person may have touched those thousand thread count sheets. I don't care how many times you launder them. I will never sleep in that bed. It's just fucking disgusting. Yeah, but it's also, it's so... Before we uh, before we move on and talk about like some of the the missteps that LA City has made, let's talk about No Vacancies California, which is yeah. uh, coming out of a lot of the same groups that are behind services, not sweeps. And basically, yes. they're making the demand that we just articulated that there are a lot of empty hotel rooms. There are a lot of people who need places to live. Let's put the people who need a place to live in the empty hotel rooms. It seems very easy. It also seems like something where... You know, we're not like eminent domaining these hotel rooms. We're not like commandeering them for the state, though we totally could do that under the emergency orders that we've got. But instead, that we'll be paying like a fair rate to house somebody in that hotel, which it seems to me as not a good businessman, um, that if I'm looking at the option of having no money coming in versus some money coming in, I want the some money coming in. Like at least that's revenue that's being generated and deferring some of my costs versus like just having a hotel sit there uh, and depreciate in value day after day. But so uh, you can head over to novacancyca.org novacancyca.org to check out the demands. I'm going to read them real quick because they're very simple. So there are three demands here. One, we demand state, county, and city electeds act now to provide housing to all unhoused people 
in the hundreds of thousands of vacant hotel rooms across the state for the health and safety of all Californians. Two, we demand that when opening hotel rooms to the unhoused, hotels will offer their out-of-work service employees the opportunity to reclaim their jobs. And this is a big one. Unite Here, which is a service employees union, has seen like 99% of their staff in some cities laid off, or 99% of their members in some cities laid off. Like, that's a lot of people who have been doing jobs for a long while, are reliant on that income, have families, have rent payments, have to, like, buy food and stuff, who are suddenly out of work. And that is a massive hit to a union. Uh, And it's one where, like, we can start providing not just humanitarian relief, but also some economic relief to the people who are most directly impacted by this. Uh, The third demand is we demand the dignity and personal property rights of all individuals moved into hotel rooms must be respected. Like, the city can't force you to give up your stuff. If they, if you want to move into a hotel room, they can't take away everything that can't fit into a 60 gallon, um, bin. And we've seen some pushback there also, not just from the courts, um, but also from the city itself where 5611 is still sort of being enforced, but it's also not. We also saw a big court win coming across basically with the appeals court saying that the city of Los Angeles can no longer enforce 5611 that is cruel and inhumane under the conditions that it's in. And that was a lawsuit again, launched by many of the people who are involved in no vacancy CA as well as services, not sweeps, but is a huge, yep. huge win for people who are living on the street, but one that's gotten kind of overshadowed by our attempted COVID response, at least as far as the yeah. city of LA is concerned. Um, and this is even like, we haven't gotten into it uh, too much, uh, mainly because I've been waiting for us to sort of get to a conclusion. But if you've been following the antics, and I am going to say antics of Judge Carter as he pillories <laughs> city leadership, um, it's been a pretty damning assessment. You know, he has been going yeah. out to the hand washing stations in Skid Row uh, near where his courthouse is. Well, his his makeshift courthouse, which is being run out of a hotel at the moment, um, but gone out and checked the, the stations and found that like none of them had water. Most of them didn't have soap. Many of them were had not been filled or refilled since they were first installed. Uh, Bubba Gump, yeah. I think that's the name of it, or, or Andy Gump, I think, is the name of the uh, they they do like porta potties and stuff. But they claimed one of their workers yeah, yeah, yeah. was attacked while trying to refill a station and so they're no longer refilling stations Uh, no it was that they um they claimed that one of their workers was pricked by a needle a a discarded sharp in the trash at one of the hand washing stations and therefore they've they were reclaiming those those hand washing stations and were not going to continue to use them i mean it's almost like they could just give their workers gloves that can't be pricked through like they make those PVC gloves that are are stab resistant. Like you can use those. You can give your workers what they need to be safe. Uh, also you can put also a sharp spin on there. Yeah, exactly. Put out a sharps container, and that that protects everyone. Come on, but, people. Yeah, no, but we're seeing just sort of like laziness, as well as like a lot of excuses as to why we can't provide basic hygiene on the streets in a city that has fifty nine billionaires, uh, and no one is expropriating all of their wealth to fill this. Um, so it's it's. Somewhat maddening, but we're also seeing some progress, hopefully. But it's also one where I fear, like, we're going to be too late on it. Like, for London Breed to be moved to putting yeah. everyone in hotel rooms, we had to have a large outbreak at the, at San Francisco's largest shelter. You know, we're not even well, seeing that kind of urgency here in L.A. Yeah, and they also had the situation in, in San Francisco where London Breed had attempted to use basically, uh, what was it, like the convention center? Where they had laid out this grid of tape with cots. And they were like, yep, we're going to move everybody into this, this completely unprotected environment where everyone is just going to be stewing in each other's, you know, uh, you know, moisture droplets from their, from breathing. 
uh, which is absolutely going to enhance the spread of the virus. Well, and also sharing uh, all the same showers, sharing all the same yeah, sinks, yeah, 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 like yeah. just being right like, on top of each other. A dormitory type of uh, you know shelter is the worst possible place for you to be trying to protect people from the coronavirus. Like that is, there's no protection whatsoever for any individuals in in that kind of a circumstance. So. Uh, that was what she tried to do at first before, you know, getting yelled at, you know, deservedly so, and then having to backtrack and then take this tactic of moving toward the hotels. And I, I do not understand why it is that we're, we're so slow here in the city of Los Angeles to take the same approach. Uh, I mean, I live downtown and when I go to pick up, you know, more supplies for the mutual aid project place where I'm getting it is like between my home and where I'm getting these bulk goods for, for distribution. I drive literally through skid row and there's no amount of like personal protective equipment that seems to be making any, making its way at all into the population. That's, that's stuck living on the, that part of the streets of Los Angeles. There's no, no observing of social distancing. Like people are in exactly the same situations they were in before, if not, more concentrated and worse because now there are fewer people out in you know about the city and, and going about to restaurants and everything else where you know that is one of the ways that people who are unhoused are able to get the food that they need is that they ask people as they're leaving restaurants or you know when they see them on the streets but when all of those regular people that go about their lives on the on the streets in Los Angeles are now all staying indoors or are masked up wearing gloves and not talking to anyone on the streets, let alone somebody who's unhoused, there is no other resource available other than these missions and uh, other nonprofits down on Skid Row. And it's just really absolutely concentrated the suffering of all these people in, in a truly horrifying way. Yes. But just to touch back really quickly on uh, the judge ruling that you mentioned relating to the seizure of property, this is something that's huge, and we'll go into a lot more detail about it later. It just hasn't, um, you know, there's too much going on right now. So the, I just wanted to quote really quickly from the LAFLA press release because it's and, uh, and what very is, important. And what so is LAFLA? LAFLA is the Los Angeles, or sorry, the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles. It's fun because they both, there's two LAs in there, and you've got to remember which one comes first. Um, but LAFLA is the, uh, the main... Um, legal representation for K-Town for All as well as a couple of uh, unhoused folks. Uh, it was The lawsuit was brought by the unhoused residents who had tents and other properties seized repeatedly by the city's sanitation department. Uh, K-Town for All became a participant in the lawsuit because we were supplying those tents which were being confiscated by the city, so we were monetarily impacted because we were the ones providing the supplies that kept being seized. So yep. uh, it was really good. We were also able to provide a lot of information and evidence to the uh, lawyers and then to the judge uh, that proved our case, like the city and its response to unhoused people without a pandemic was fucking horrifying. Um, so just quoting really quickly from this uh, quote, U S district judge Dale S Fisher ruled for a group of unhoused individuals in a community organization, K town for all, who filed a lawsuit in July 2019 challenging the constitutionality of parts of Los Angeles Municipal Code Section 5611 and the city's continued and widespread practice of seizing and destroying homeless people's belongings. Legal, Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles 
Shoburn, uh, Seplo, Harris, Hoffman, and Zeldes LLP, and Kirkland and Ellis LLP represent the plaintiffs who live in neighborhoods stretching across Los Angeles from Van Nuys to Harbor City. I uh, just want to make sure that the folks who are doing this work get the recognition that they deserve because they're awesome and uh, having like, I gotta say, like activist lawyers are some of my favorite people on the planet because they're just, it's they're, like utilizing that tool that has been used to keep people down for so long to stick it to the man is just fucking badass. Uh, yes. And they make me very happy every time I see them. So just want to throw that out there really quick before we get on to some stuff that is uh, less than less than fun. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, to I, just to, just <laughs> to contextualize uh, as we move into this this next piece specifically about the L.A. Marathon, what we're really trying to point to as far as the crisis on our streets is ongoing, but it's being exacerbated by yeah. the city's inability to do what needs to be done, which they know needs to be done and them dragging their feet on getting there. Like, it's nice that we finally have like 20 places around the city and county of LA where you can get tested within 24 hours. Um, only if you have symptoms, they haven't moved to asymptomatic testing yet, but we're finally getting that put up. But for the people who are living on the street and the people who are vulnerable to COVID, this is a delay that they cannot afford. So there's been a lot of hard questions asked of Eric Garcetti about why he decided to stage the LA marathon earlier in March. So let's talk about his response because it is, um, it's a very, it's a very Meg response. Yeah. So this week, Emily Alpert Reyes from the LA times, uh, was paying attention to what was going on with the mayor because that's her job and she's very good at it. Uh, so she tweeted that quote, LA mayor, Eric Garcetti asked whether the city should have canceled the marathon says no, LA hasn't traced a cluster of cases to the event. He says, end quote. Uh, this of course sparked a little bit of an, uh, Twitter thread, uh, where Jacqueline, uh, Jacqueline, I believe Cosgrove, who was another reporter from the LA times, uh, later in the thread, she replied that quote, Garcetti said he raised that question with county officials and was told by a supervisor that there weren't any clusters associated with the marathon. He was told that none of the contact tracing pointed to marathon. Um, so this is interesting because there's 27,000 people who participated in the marathon. And a huge number of them were from outside of the city of Los Angeles. So I'm really wondering, you know, where the data is that proves that. Uh, but, you know, well, it's also one, this is one of those things. Go for it. There was in that same uh, Twitter thread, uh, Jacqueline Cosgrove was relating what a uh, county scientist, uh, public health official standing next yep. to Garcetti was saying when asked for clarification. And the scientist was basically like, look, we can't prove a negative. Like we can't prove that there are Correct. no cases that came out of the LA marathon. But what we're telling you now is that we haven't been able to find those. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but also we weren't testing at that time. So it's a hard one to figure out. And also for the number of people who travel into the, into the city of LA for the marathon, because we have marathoners coming from across the world. Like we're not oh, yeah, tracing yeah, yeah. somebody who flew all the way back to their home in Kenya after running the LA yeah. marathon. Like, there is a massive fucking gap in that data set. And Eric Garcetti is being like, oh, we haven't measured, like we haven't found those clusters. Therefore, the clusters don't exist is just logically and scientifically bankrupt thinking. What he should be saying yeah. is we haven't been able to find those clusters. They probably do exist, but we waited so long to do testing that we haven't been able to find them. And now we probably won't. But that would mean in admitting that he screwed up because what he should have done and what 
everybody involved in it should have done was cancel the fucking marathon. Yep. There was absolutely no reason on the verge of a pandemic that we saw sweeping across Asia and into Italy and the rest of Europe. We knew it was coming. We didn't realize how bad it was going to be when it hit the U.S. because, you know, we had to wait until uh, Governor Cuomo proved just how badly he could fuck up to show us how bad that really was going to get. Um, but this, like, the responsible approach should have been to cancel the fucking marathon. Like, they, they canceled Coachella and they canceled all these other things that were further out, but they were just like, nah, like, this thing that's happening right now, like, nah, don't worry about it. You know, 27,000 people running in close proximity, breathing heavily all over each other and, you know, bumping around. It's just <sighs> completely morally bankrupt by the mayor and everybody else involved in that decision-making process not to have canceled the fucking marathon. Well, and, and also, uh, yeah. And well, also Go we, we know uh, based on reporting out of the nation that the Pentagon commissioned a report in 2017 that found that coronavirus, and this wasn't like COVID-19 specifically, but remember, coronavirus yeah. is an entire family of illnesses that includes like SARS um, and yeah. swine flu and, or not swine flu, but SARS. And then the, the there's another um, well, outbreak. That's why they that, called the novel coronavirus. Yeah, right? but there's another one that came out of the, the, the Middle East after SARS that was yes. also coronavirus. Uh, MERS. Yeah. MERS. Uh, MERS, right? I guess. Yes. yes. M-E-R-S. Yeah, there we go. Yep. Uh, but so uh, the Pentagon had identified coronavirus as a potential to create a global pandemic in 2017. Like we knew that there could be a pandemic coming, not necessarily in the next couple of years, but like in the next couple of decades. And we didn't move to do anything like this was dropping the ball at a federal and international level. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. when it came to what was happening in Wuhan and that kind of like coming out and people trying to catch up, we could have taken very strict measures, but nobody yes. felt like it was worth taking the risk. And now we're at a point where instead of having sort of a sensible plan for how we'll shut down the economy, how we'll get people what they need, how we'll take care of the people who get sick or take care of the people who are vulnerable. Uh, we just sort of had this rush to like do everything at the last minute and try and catch up later. And the, the LA marathon is kind of a prime example of that. Garcetti's big excuse is, Oh, well there were still NBA games going on. It's like, guess what? You could have canceled those too, Eric. You're literally the mayor. You literally have a police department that can go and shut things down. Like you could go shut down Staples Center, which is now turned into like a field hospital, but you could have stopped the Lakers from playing games there. And like, they would have just had to deal with that. It's the, we keep seeing politicians telling us over and over and over again, like, it's oh, buck passing. yeah, we, we, we can't do that. We couldn't do that. We're not going to do that. It's like, you know what? Screw it. Do it now. Fight the battle later in the courts. Like yeah. when Lincoln uh, suspended habeas corpus, Nobody stopped him from suspending habeas corpus. It wasn't until that battle went all the way to the Supreme Court that they were like, aha, you couldn't have suspended habeas corpus. Like, you weren't allowed to do that. And I'm not saying, like, people should suspend habeas corpus. What I am saying <laughs> is that politicians should have a little bit more um, bravery and courage when it comes to yeah, things yeah, yeah. like seize hotel rooms to put people in them. Um, don't allow private hospitals to uh, screw over patients, you know mandate that there be yeah. free testing for everyone in the county of Los Angeles. Like these are things that the politicians can do, but they lack the political bravery to do it. And it's going to be really interesting because like come November, I don't know where voters are going to be, but I think the politicians thinking if they rock the boat, the least they're going to survive. Well, is not going to be the equation that matters, especially if we see another wave of COVID deaths because of the like lockdown yeah. being lifted too soon. Like people are going to place the blame somewhere. 
Uh, and I have a feeling it's going to be at the feet of the wealthy people who have been in charge of the city for far, far too long. Uh, unfortunately, most of the city council members who were running for re-election ended up winning their primary outright, so they can't be challenged again, but they could be recalled. Um, but that's a that's hey. a, a subject for a different time. So uh, let's go ahead and move on um, real quick. Uh, before we get in, like, there's some big stuff going down Tuesday at the next city council meeting. But before we get into that, there's one thing I want to flag, is I've talked about many, many times. I'm a type 1 diabetic. Uh, I've been doing that for about 20 years. Uh, and it's yep. it's hard. Uh, one of the hardest parts about it, aside from just having a chronic illness that's always trying to kill you, is affording the medication that can let you lead a long, full life. You know, when I was diagnosed at the age of 18, the average life expectancy of a diabetic, a type 1 diabetic male in the U.S. was about 52. With the new insulin therapies and pump therapies and continuous glucose monitors that we have access to, now average life expectancy for a diabetic male, if, you're, if you have access to these therapies, is well into the 60s. It's not quite average human life expectancy in the U.S., which is about 72. It's about 68, but it's still a hell of a lot better than 52. And 52 is a hell of a lot better than what it was before the invention of insulin, which was 24. The problem that we have is that insulin literally can cost you more than you pay for rent in a month. Uh, for myself, if I'm paying for my insulin out of pocket, not through insurance, um, not by going to like Craigslist where I've been getting my insulin recently because I don't have health insurance at the moment, uh, I'm paying about $1,500 to $1,750 per month. Um, and that's just to maintain the basic functions of life and not die in an incredibly painful way. So I've been uh, kind of working, not very closely, but I've been involved with the Insulin for All movement, uh, both in Arizona and here in California. Uh, more so in Arizona, I haven't had the chance to, to get as involved in Insulin for All California. But we've been pushing to cap insulin prices and make manufacturers sell it for the price that it actually costs to produce. Like a, a vial of insulin that lasts a month or, you know, a vial of insulin. And most people, it depends. Like for me, uh, my Lantus, I need to go through more of that in a month than I need to go through the, the short-term insulins like Humalog. But Humalog will cost you about $275 to $300 a month. For a lot of people, that'll last like 10 days to two weeks. Um, and it costs about $6.50 to produce that vial of insulin. And they charge you $300 for it. So Eli Lilly announced this week that they're starting a new program where they're capping insulin costs for impacted patients at $35, um, which is good, right? Like that's, that's definitely um, a step in the right direction. The problem is that in order to access that, you have to go fill out a very onerous form in Eli Lilly's website uh, that asks you for things like your immigration status um, and also your insurance status. <laughs> what? If, if what? Yes. And so when it, when it's the $35 insulin, like, and this is the good insulin, this isn't the Walmart insulin. This is the actual like new human analog insulin that like is, is much more effective, but that $35 isn't forever. It, it's only until the end of the pandemic. Um, probably. Uh, and also has a yearly cap of $7,500. Now, the other kind of like trick to this is that $35 is not what cuts off the deductible. Like they're they're kind of shaving off your deductible based on the actual retail cost. So if your insulin costs you a thousand bucks a month and you go in and buy your insulin for $35 in one month, you're actually taking a thousand dollars off your deductible. There's been some other movement across the, the country to have insulin copays like capped by various states. Colorado did this. Uh, uh, Northam in Virginia just signed Lee Carter's bill that caps insulin copays at $50 a month. And while these, again, are like steps in the right direction, they don't protect everyone. They only protect you if you have insurance. Oh, yeah. And if you don't have insurance outright, you have no way to access that, you know? So that's why folks like me go to Craigslist, go to Mexico, go to Canada, 
Like we have to find ways to pr provide the insulin that we need. Like your pancreas produces insulin for free. Like your, your pancreas does what it's supposed to do and allows your body to digest sugar and like not find itself becoming incredibly sick by, by just eating a meal. Mine does not. And so I need to inject my insulin. And I spend an inordinate amount of my time and my life finding novel ways to get my hands on that. And it's kind of a slap in the face for an insulin manufacturer to turn around and say, we'll sell this to you for $35 a month. And it's like, oh, so you could have done that at any fucking time. Like people didn't need to die. And we, it's hard to trace the numbers, but you know, it seems like probably once every two weeks, maybe once or twice a month, a diabetic in America dies because they can't afford their insulin. This hasn't yeah. led to the kind of like radical change that we need. It's just led us to these sort of like stopgap measures where we're still still just seen as profit centers for this rent seeking behavior by big pharma selling us drugs yeah. that have not changed in 20 years. Meanwhile, they don't have any generic competitors because they literally pay them off to not produce the insulin. Like that's something I do want to point out is there is just outright criminal monopolization going on here and something that Congress could move to change absolutely fucking immediately if they wanted to. So, um, while we're seeing some good progress on providing people what they need in terms of like access to insulin, it's not nearly enough. And it's something that really like, I kind of like Liz Warren's plan of let's nationalize insulin production. Like we should just fucking do that. Yeah. You know, big pharma doesn't yeah. do anything but serve the shareholders. I am 100% okay with running the national guard up into like Eli Lilly's production facilities and just taking it over. 100%. We could 100% do that and save lives. So, uh, with, with my little, like, well, before we move on, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that for some context here, like there is an example of what an actual humanitarian approach to healthcare and, you know, uh, medication and, and in this case, vaccines is like what it should look like. And so, uh, I mean, Everybody knows or should know about the the, the ravaging impact that um, that polio used to have on the populations of of this country and all other countries around the world. And it wasn't until uh, the fifties when uh, Jonas Salk invented a, a a vaccine that stopped that literally stopped polio in its tracks and allowed us. To no longer have to have kids in iron fucking lungs, you know, just to not die. And the, like, I mean, FDR was, was crippled and, and st stuck in a, uh, in a wheelchair because of a later, uh, an infection from, from polio later in life that just completely debilitated his ability to walk. And the point here is that on, on April 12th, 1955, and I'm, I'm actually quoting from history.com because they've got a little section about this. Uh, this is the day that Salk, uh, the, the Salk vaccine was declared, quote, safe, effective, and potent. Uh, legendary CBS newsman Edward R. Morrow interviewed its creator and asked, who owned the patent? And Salk rep responded, quote, well, the people, I would say, said Salk, in light of the millions of charitable donations raised by the March of Dimes that funded the vaccine's research and field testing. Quote, there is no patent. Could you pay, could you patent the sun? Lawyers from the foundation had investigated the possibility of patenting the vaccine, but did not pursue it in part because of Salk's reluctance. The reality here is that insulin production and all of these other things, all of, all of this medical research, the reason why we have the kind of healthcare that we have that's available to us and these miracle cures for all sorts of things 
is almost entirely down to public financing and funding of the research, whether that be through postdoctoral work, PhD candidates, you know, grad students in universities, research universities across the country doing this work. Tons of that, most of that research is funded through federal grants and, fe- and taxpayer subsidies. The reason why the medical industry exists in its current form is because they have been taking tons of taxpayer money to make it possible. And then they, so they socialize the, the outlay of capital when it comes to developing these vaccines and, and treatments. And then they get to completely monopolize all of the profits that come out of it. And it's just fucking disgusting. And to, to sort of explain how this um, is a, is exactly what happened with insulin manufacturing when the, the Canadian researchers who developed uh, the first insulin therapies were going to patent it, they decided to sell the patents yeah. for a dollar because the idea was if pharma researchers or pharma companies can buy the patents for really cheap, they'll produce it for real cheap. Instead, what they did was they allowed pharma to buy the monopolies and then squeeze diabetics. And again, I, like for the majority of insulin's existence, it was not seen as a profit center for pharma companies. Back in the 80s, there were more than 20 insulin therapies available on the market. By the time we get to 2000, when we see insulin prices begin to skyrocket, there are six therapies on the, on the market that are controlled by three companies, really two and a half companies. Nova Nordisk and Eli, Eli Lilly control the vast majority of insulin sales and manufacturing in the world. Sanofi is the other one but they really only make one type of insulin called Lantus, which I use and which is still used by a lot of people, but not as popular as it once was. But when we saw this kind of switch over, I want to say around the dot-com bust, and when we saw the Federal Reserve really bailing out companies and allowing companies to consolidate and uh, become more profit-seeking and more vicious in that profit-seeking, that's when the pharma companies really began to engage in this gouging, rent-seeking behavior at the cost of people's lives. Um, and it's something that like, you know, these companies don't disclose their R&D budgets and they don't disclose their marketing budgets, but we've learned from leaks that their marketing budget way bigger than their R&D budget. And that's not something that we see in Europe. Like if you go to a Euro- an EU country, you will not see a single pharmaceutical ad on TV. Here in the US, it's gotta be like half the ad you see on TV and it's ridiculous. But- oh, yeah. But let's uh before we before we stay <laughs> on this <laughs> yeah before we stay on this uh for too long let's uh, go ahead and talk about what's going down on Tuesday because the last city council meeting not a whole lot happened uh, and people are pretty pissed about that so it seems like this city council meeting is going to be pretty rough and tumble and hopefully they'll have the uh the tech problems ironed out uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on that side of things but uh. I I will say, though, that they did a hell of a lot better job with their glitchy tech solutions to uh, providing public comment and and letting us get those lovely video streams from people's uh, from the council members, either homes or offices. Uh, That's a hell of a lot better than what the the county board of supervisors did, although uh, at the same time, the county board of supervisors actually seems to be taking this threat significantly more seriously. Uh, And there's some really good reporting coming out of the L.A. Times and others on the measures that were passed through the county board of supervisors in terms of rent protections, eviction moratoriums, uh, strengthening all those things. It's a little bit confusing because what the board of supervisors uh, said, because I I was actually live tweeting that whole meeting, which was super fun for my blood pressure. um, They they had some really good rhetoric when it came to enhancing renter protections and and, uh, strengthening an eviction moratorium or putting one in place rather where they said that they wanted to 
basically have their protections apply except in places where cities are like, basically if their protections were stronger, that those would apply to anywhere that is exists in the city, unless the city uh, had or any, any municipalities within the County of Los Angeles, except where those municipalities have something that's stronger. But the problem is that uh, Barger had some kind of a carve out that was put in that said that if you have any existing protections, then this doesn't apply. So that means that right now what the county did, which is better than what the city did, doesn't apply to the city because that was an exception that was granted by Supervisor Barger. So thank you very much, the one Republican on the County Board of Supervisors, for uh, fucking us over. But when it comes to the city council agenda, we've got a lot of stuff coming up on Tuesday. We've got more discussions surrounding the eviction moratorium, rent freeze, converting rent debt to consumer debt, which is something that is extremely interesting for us because it would mean that you wouldn't be able to use uh, your rent debt as a reason to evict somebody. So that would be badass. Uh, there's also a resolution to support uh, federal rent and mortgage relief. Um, this is on the heels of some really, really amazing legislation that was put forward uh, by Ilhan Omar in coordination with uh, groups, specifically with People's Action, our national uh, I don't know how, how would you describe the, uh, the relationship between like, it's our, our parent organization. Wait, what do you mean? Like between lo- people's action, we're, we're an affiliate of people's action. I, yeah, I always we're a member of, we're a member of people's action. Like we're, member we're a part of yeah, their, okay. their network, like people's action. It's the people's action network. So it's kind yeah, of a large umbrella structure that we all belong to, but we're all autonomous orgs underneath it. Um, who generally work in collaboration and concert with each other on national campaigns, but it's also, it's not like a lockstep thing. You know, if somebody, you know, if an organization doesn't want to work on a campaign, uh, they don't work on that people's action campaign. Uh, but right now, one of the, one of the things that is getting a lot of work is the homes guarantee moving into a, uh, an eviction protection, uh, you know, rent zero, all of these things that are moving forward. And Ilhan Omar has become the champion for this people's action legislation at the federal level. And it's getting some really good discussion going at the federal level of what they can do, because what we have seen in previous weeks has been, at least here in L.A., the city council is literally just passing the buck, being like, uh, we don't know what we can do. We, can, we, we can't step in here and protect renters from evictions because that's just not the thing that we have the capacity to do. Can and I, as you pointed out, Bushido, they, they absolutely do. Can I, can I uh, ask a clarifying question? Because the, the, sure. the county board did take action that sort of maybe yes. affects the city of L.A., um, how are those interacting right now? I know this is complicated. It's, it's very complicated <laughs> and weird. Um, so it's hard to really like, well, I want to give some clarity to people who are like, oh, I live in LA County, but I live in LA city. Am I more protected today than I was on Monday? Short answer is no, you're not. Um, basically what happened, uh, touching back really quick on that supervisor's meeting was that, uh, supervisors Kuhl and Solis both mentioned that they wanted uh, and that they envisioned this motion that they were working on as superseding any weaker renter protections or eviction moratoriums that already existed in any municipalities across the county. They said as much during the meeting. That was what was being discussed. But when you actually look at the language of the motion, uh, as I pointed out, Catherine Barger, who is the supervisor for the northeastern portion of L.A. County, uh, where yeah. Antelope Valley and all of the rest of the less densely populated sections of the county are, uh, you know, because it's, it's so spread out that she needs those helicopter rides, uh, to get around to things. Um, not with, not with, uh, quarantine traffic. She doesn't, 
Um, <laughs> but the uh, basically, she put in a carve out in in the language in the motion that says that if the cities uh, within the the county already have any eviction moratorium or renter protections, that the county's new emergency response measures do not supersede them, but rather they only apply to places in unincorporated portions of the county and in cities and municipalities in the county that don't already have those protections. So, so basically because uh, LA Los has, Angeles, so because LA has the RSO, yep. we don't get any yep. more protections. Correct. So it's, it's, yeah, um, it's a, it's a disaster. So uh, thank you, Barger for fucking that all up. Um, yeah. So then there are a couple of other things. We've got some, some rental relief, uh, motions coming out of Nuri Martinez's office. That's also going to be up on the discussion for the agenda on Tuesday. And, uh, there's a responsible banking ordinance amendment, uh, that is being proposed by, uh, council president Nuri Martinez and, uh, former council president Herb Wesson, uh, to change the way that the city is interacting with the banks in order to try to ameliorate some of the rental concerns and mortgage issues within the city. Uh, and there are also some worker protections that are going to be up on the agenda, uh, talking about retention and the ability to recall workers and, uh, you know, who gets to be first on the list of priorities when things start to go back to normal. Um, council member Bonin is going to be introducing a motion to use the federal stimulus funds to invest in or create community land trusts and do social housing. So thank you council member Bonin for being the actual progressive on city council in this uh, grim time talking about the same stuff that you were talking about before. Uh, we're thrilled to see social housing still being something that is being discussed. One of the really cool aspects of the uh, legislation that's being put forward by Ilhan Omar in Congress is that you would see basically mortgage relief for landlords uh, where if the tenants are not able to pay rent, then they, uh, the landlords are able to apply for mortgage relief. And this is like the only kind of means testing that I will get behind is make the landlords prove that they need the fucking support uh, because this is what they do as their job is if your job is managing property, then you get to fill out all sorts of paperwork to keep doing that job because it's not really a job. I don't means test you the say, landlords me, means bro. test the landlords. Hell yeah. So in, in the legislation, it says that if you, uh, basically you can get some level of relief from the federal government, uh, if you can prove that you need it. And if you, uh, don't feel like that's enough, then you always have the option to, uh, sell off your property and stop being a landlord. And in this case with what Ilhan Omar is introducing, it allows you to sell your property off to HUD, which is the Housing and Urban Development Department, and that would be fantastic because then we could actually increase the stock of publicly owned housing in this country in a meaningful way. And, and make it, yeah, make it no it. longer be profit-seeking, <laughs> like perhaps lower costs yes. for tenants and all that fun stuff. <laughs> I do want to say before we move on, a uh, big shout out to uh, not just the team at People's Action, like Tara Raghavir uh, from Kansas City Tenants, who has been leading the Homes Guarantee campaign. Yep. Um, but to some of our organizers out here, Ashley Bennett and Steve Ducey, who were like directly on these calls and helped make Absolutely. suggestions for mocking up this legislation. And like Daisy Vega, who is a power board member and a power leader oh, and is an Daisy. absolute force of nature. She was Bernie's state state of California campaign co-chair, one of his campaign co-chairs, the first yes. public housing tenant ever named as a state campaign co-chair by any presidential candidate ever. And she's been at the forefront fighting for her neighbors and for her community and fighting for justice for everyone who is trying to just live in the city of Los Angeles, especially public housing tenants, 
especially working families and especially undocumented people here because they're the folks that are being locked out of our relief efforts now and are always facing the brunt of our shitty politics, but now more so than ever. Yep. Daisy is amazing. Uh, if you ever get a chance to say hi to her, it's, it, she's just a wonderful person. Um, so a p- quick point on here is that uh, when it comes to other issues that are up on the agenda, there were a number of things that were introduced uh, in you know, written proposals by various council members uh, prior to last week's meeting. And because they were submitted as written motions, they didn't get to be heard in the discussion. They were just entered into the record and didn't have to be discussed in council, didn't have to get any kind of public comment, um, which is it's just one of the weird uh, anachronistic tendencies or, or, you know, just it's part of the rules, right? That's the way it works. So um, a number of motions were introduced that are showing up on the agenda, and those are including the the the. Responsible banking ordinance uh, motion to amend that from Nuri and Wesson. Uh, other other things that came out of uh, Council Member Nuri Martinez's office and everything else. But a number of the pieces of legislation that were put forward by Mike Bonin, uh, in fact, all of them uh, relating to the needs of unhoused communities in Los Angeles. These are you know motions relating to uh, increasing the number and uh, you know support for hygiene stations. Uh, switching city properties over to emergency housing, safe camping. None of those things actually made it onto the agenda. Uh, and we understand that this is not down to any decisions that were made by Council President Nuri Martinez, but rather that the uh, city departments just didn't do the fucking work. So these departments really just don't seem to have any fucking sense of urgency when it comes to working on issues surrounding the plight of our unhoused neighbors. Um, this is just damning of the city's departments to just you know, deprioritize people who are going to be the most, who already are the most impacted by the coronavirus and, and quarantine and all of these other things and are most at risk to be impacted as we've, we've mentioned multiple times here. Like when it looks, when you look at the populations in shelters or living on the streets, the rate at which the coronavirus has been spreading through those populations is astounding. And, and that's just for the places that we've actually done testing that we know the numbers. And the city just declining to move forward with any of these motions to protect them is, is just, uh, it's inexcusable. Um, a couple of the other things that uh, are happening is that we saw that the No Vacancy California, hashtag No Vacancy CA, uh, didn't seem to register with what the members of the council are prioritizing. There's nothing currently on the agenda pertaining to the discussion of utilizing hotels for housing the homeless. Uh, Monica Rodriguez does have a motion on the agenda regarding hotels and healthcare workers, and something might come out of that on Tuesday. We're not sure yet, but there potentially might be some motions to amend. We don't know. Uh, there's also going to be a closed session discussing the homeless lawsuits that uh, our favorite judge, Judge Carter, uh, has been uh, he's been talking about with city officials and county officials and all sorts of people uh, up and down the levels of authority. Uh, the city, how the city responds to judge Carter is something that they're going to be discussing in private because we, the public are of course not privy to such discussions that impact all of us. A huge roadblock to renter protections in previous discussions at city council. We're talking about, you know, two weeks ago, uh, that 11 hour marathon meeting on a Friday, that was an emergency meeting where things were happening and all of the really fun public comment was going on. Uh, one of those big impediments to renter protections was the incorrect analysis and the aggressive lobbying by L.A. City Attorney Mike Fuhrer's office. So 
It appears that despite the fact that the majority of the people who live in the city of Los Angeles are renters, the city attorney seems hell-bent on continuing to pursue an anti-renter agenda. And given the fact that this asshole has decided to throw his hat in the ring already to run for mayor, I don't know what he wants to do. No one knows who he fucking is. No one knows who Mike Fear is. No one knows who Eric Garcetti is. Like 30% of LA at best knows who Eric Garcetti is. And Mike Fear thinking that like he's going to ride those coattails into office is uh, adorable. But I also want to say like there's been some chatter that Mike Fear's office has been particularly resistant to using the full powers that are granted by the current state of emergency. And that if we actually had an LA city attorney who gave two shits about the people who lived in the city of LA and not just his own political campaigns, we would actually be able to do a lot of stuff immediately without having to wait for council's say so. Instead, they're spending all of their fucking time coming up with incorrect opinions as to why they can't do anything to help. And oh my God, Mike Fuhrer, I'm going to shave off your mustache when you lose. (laughs) That will be the best thing ever. Also, your mustache. uh, My mustache will eat his mustache. Vastly superior. It's vastly superior. Uh, And my current mustache is uh, getting shaggy as all hell, but it's still superior. Let me let me know when like small woodland creatures move in. (laughs) I'll let you know. Um, all right. So anyway, in, in some, just really quick touching on this again, uh, activist lawyers, I love you all. Somebody please fucking run for city attorney and let's change this shit and actually make suggestions to city council that they get off their lazy asses and do something about all of these things. Because, you know, this COVID-19 crisis is absolutely highlighting just how ineffectual the city council has been at dealing with all of these other ongoing you know, slow burning crises of homelessness, of massive rent burdens across the city and the county, all of this stuff. We are seeing all of that brought to the fore because something like 50% of the city of LA is now unemployed because of this crisis and the quarantine and the fact that yeah, 1. we are such 1.6 million people in the county alone. It's the... The impact that this is having is huge, and it's just highlighting the massive shortcomings of all of our elected officials and their their lack of courage when it comes to moving forward with actual progressive agendas to fix these systemic issues. Like people say that Los Angeles is one of the most you know liberal cities in the country. It's just like okay, well, fucking prove it. Like our our elected officials yep. uh, have been demonstrating that that's not the case for a long time, and this crisis is really highlighting that to a bunch of everyday Angelinos who because of their incompetence at in the elected officials, like we, they don't have the time or the energy to be paying attention to this stuff because they're in a fucking rat race for daily survival because our elected officials suck at giving them any kind of a quality of life that is, that would allow them to spend time and energy focusing on the systematic problems that are the systemic problems that are at the root of all this. But uh, before we go into you know deeper analysis of what is so fundamentally broken in our city and county, uh, one of the rel- very big but relatively unnoticed news items out of the past week was that the Board of Airport Commissioners this week actually agreed to a request that came out of Unite Here Local Level and Councilmember Bonin's office that conditions the rental relief for struggling airport terminal concessions providers uh, on a requirement that they provide family health care for two months to all the employees that they have let go in this crisis as they've had to shut down. So that is, uh, that's a big win. Like if you want, if you as a business want rental relief 
uh, for the fact that you're, you know, shut down and can't do business, uh, provide healthcare to your workers. And that's great to see. And I'm, I'm, I believe that we're seeing this in other airports across the country, but LAX being one of the largest in the country, uh, this is a huge step forward and huge win for Unite Here Local 11. Thrilled to be seeing that happening. And uh, let's hope that those, those fights that don't get noticed as much, um, but are significant wins for the people who are, at, you know, again, most impacted by this virus and this crisis, uh, it's, it's just, it's heartwarming to see that happen. So <sighs> moving on, there's stuff happening. Yeah. So, uh, to flag this again for y'all, uh, because I think it, it matters a lot. Uh, remember to head over to, uh, Twitch, uh, the, the channel you want to watch is ground game LA. Uh, we're going to be going live with our first ever chat show, uh, Wednesday night at 6 PM. So make sure to show up for that one. Ooh. And then, uh, check me and Chris out, uh, next Saturday around, uh, Sometime between like nine and ten, we'll figure it out. Twitch is Twitch is pretty like <laughs> loosey goosey with the with the scheduling. Uh, but we'll we'll kind of dial that in as we get to it. Uh, and then we also have the ground game meeting uh, Thursday seven thirty. Uh, you can get at us on social media um, and get the link. Uh, Twitch, uh, sorry, not Twitch. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, and yeah. Loop in with us. Um, we've got a lot of work coming up for 2020 and for 2022. Yeah. We're not sure what this next next election is going to look like for November. We're figuring it out, but like we're definitely going to get Nithia over the finish line. Like we're going to replace at least Hell one yeah. city council member, and then we're going to get to work on replacing all the rest of them in 2022. So I really hope you can make It'll it be there. So much fun. Also, if you're interested in getting involved with Mutual Aid Network or you you need something from us, uh, please don't hesitate to go to mutualaidla.org. Uh, you've got all of the information there. You can see what we've been doing, the groups that we're working with. But this has been really exciting to build and to keep it going. And we know, like, even if the economy opens up on May 15th, the pain isn't going to disappear overnight. We're going to be dealing with the fallout from this for the next couple of years. We really have to put ourselves in the mindset that we're organizing not just for a marathon, but for an ultra marathon, um, that there's going to be yeah. a lot of need to be met, that the powers that be are not going to meet it, and that we have to pull together to protect ourselves. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it was just as a quick note on the zoom meeting stuff. Um, it was awesome this past week we had, uh, I, I, it was probably like 10 people that were new. It felt like showing up to the meeting. We've had a lot of folks uh, showing folks up. Are, it's been amazing. It's, it's fantastic. Like, I mean, seeing 30, 40 people in the zoom call when we're doing these meetings is just it's exciting and it's awesome and we love you all. So please keep coming uh, and join us if you haven't, because it's extremely cathartic to get to talk to people who are, you know, super engaged and working on this stuff because it reminds you that not everybody is a shitty local elected official like Mitch O'Farrell who refuses to do anything and just has a, you know, an ax to grind to fucking hurt people because that's apparently what gets him off. Um, anyway, so as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to take part in, publicize, or just be made aware of, please send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page. Uh, you can also find us on social media on Instagram or Twitter or any of the regular things because that's where we're on all the time. Uh, send us a message. Uh, this podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. You can support our work over on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. Of course, check the description for sources, links to actions, and social media for all of your desires relating to what we talk about on this podcast. Thank you very, very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I cannot believe it's been two years of doing it's all this. It's been a this long, is... strange trip. 
It, it has, but also very rewarding. So thank you for joining us for it. Uh, we're going to keep doing this. I uh, hope y'all keep listening and uh, get more involved with us if you want, because we love to have more folks involved. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you all much. Stay safe. Uh, we will hopefully see y'all on the, uh, on the other side of this when we eventually get there. Hey. Um, but yeah, we're, it, though it, it's, it's become sort of a cliched phrase because I think a lot of folks who aren't in this with everyone keep saying it. But honestly, truly, we are in this together. This kind of crisis can be a great equalizer for our society, but it has to be up to us to seize that opportunity and make those radical changes. And I hope y'all are down with us to do that and to make sure that we build a better world out of this really incredibly preventable crisis um, that we've been led into by a bunch of wealthy idiots. Uh, And we can stop that from happening again. So thank you all. And we'll get started on that next week. Thank you.